0: Kia ora, I'm Alexia Russell and welcome to The Details Long Read. This week it's a story from RNZ's In-Depth team. Investigative reporter Guyan Espin has come out with a new series, Off the Shelf, that looks at the quiet struggle to stop New Zealanders eating themselves sick. His latest story, Fully Embedded, the Food Lobby in Aotearoa, exposes how the food industry throws its weight and its money around in sport, politics, nutrition and education. Guyon Espin is joining us to read his story himself. Kia ora, Guyon. Kia ora. What sparked the series? Just one of
1: these stories that attracts me is stories that hide in plain sight stories where people aren't breaking the law or aren't possibly doing anything scandalous but something that affects all of us and also if you look at it, New Zealand is number two and three for child and adult obesity in the world, in the developed world and so we're clearly doing something wrong there and I wanted to have a look at why that is and what the industry pushback is and how governments try to regulate the food industry. So I thought it was something that was ripe
0: for the picking. So like, what what are the blockages that clearing our path to sort of a healthier lifestyle when it comes to food.
1: Yeah, and what vested interests are at play and why is it in a country which produces so much amazingly good, healthy food... Are we importing a lot of uh, ultra-processed foods, and eating a lot of foods which, according to the experts, are making us sick? I was also attracted by this new strand of ultra-processed food, and I know that you yourself have looked at this in, in, in the past. It's a relatively new concept to a lot of New Zealanders, though, and again, hides in plain sight. Those muesli bars that you thought were uh, healthy, or, um, sometimes the the yogurt or the drink that you had, you, you'll find it's ultra-processed, and a lot of scientists, especially. Out of South America now are saying that that's one of the key drivers in this obesity ed- epidemic because it's a global thing, right? It's, it's tripled since the 1970s. So whatever we're doing, it's happening around the world and these scientists and there's a growing um, body of scientific evidence uh, puts it down to ultra-processed food. So I wanted to look at that and then also wanted to look at the marketing aspects, the lobbying aspects and the government regulation and to try and run four or five stories which we've done to, to look at those different elements of why we have such a big problem with this in New Zealand.
0: Yeah, and when we did that podcast back in March, I got a huge reaction from people who didn't realise it wasn't just what was in the food, it was the method used to concoct them. That's going to be a revelation to a lot of people.
1: Absolutely, and um, once you uh, apply those industrial processes to food and break it down to that degree, it's also the level of... Energy that you can consume quickly, which overrides your signals that you're full. So it really plays with our behaviour in this. Um, we you look at something that um, you know looks quite small, is not a big portion. Um, you can eat it very quickly. It's very dry. It's hyper palatable. In other words, it's almost addictive to eat. And, and many people listening to this will have this.
0: Uh, <laughs> oh, that's experience. my favourite brand of muesli bar.
1: <laughs> Try putting the uh, cat back on a packet of Pringles. I don't know if anyone's ever ever <laughs> done that, achieved that in their life. But this food, and it's 70% of packaged food in the supermarket now, is ultra-processed food. And it's so rich um, in in energy and is consumed so quickly that, according to these scientists, that's a big reason why um, we are having excess uh, calorie intake, which leads to many of these issues.
0: And I was really interested in uh, the Food and Grocery Council's response to your question on that. But people like it.
1: Yes, and they do. Um, And and (laughs) partly because it's got so much salt and sugar in it, uh, also because of the marketing of this uh, food and the convenience of this food. And none of the series sets out to blame people for that. You know, we're all super busy. Most households, you know, everyone's working. No one's got any time. They're picking up food from the supermarkets. All the whole foods, you have to cook them, and it's a bit harder, and it takes a lot longer. So it's really, this idea of ultra-processed food can't be separated out probably from the sort of hyper-capitalism behind it. Uh, the distribution uh, networks are set up for that too, so you can have really long shelf lives. You've, you've, you've taken uh, most of the moisture out of the food so that you don't uh, have um, uh, nasties growing in it, and you can keep it on the shelf for a long time. But but all of that uh, leads to this uh, ultra-processed food uh, category, which um, many scientists is, are saying is having real impacts on our on our
0: health. And is But people like it good enough. I mean, people like smoking cigarettes too if they're somewhere down the track. Well,
1: that's right. And that's where you get into this big argument about regulation. Now, food is one of the harder ones. Tobacco, there's just no upside, right? Um, Alcohol, again, is a bit more tricky because many people um, can manage it safely and but quite a few can't. And then food is really difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, on on the one hand, you, you can't survive without it. Everyone has it, you know, at least three times a day. And... You know, some of these foods in moderation may be fine, but when you get really, really heavy um, marketing on them and overconsumption of them, you run into problems. So I think that's why governments find it so hard to step in and regulate this stuff, and also because they get called wowsers, they get called nanny state, and that pushback from someone when you say uh, you shouldn't be eating that food, there's a real sort of almost visceral pushback from from people. So the food industry can is pushing on an open door in that respect and so the politicians are often very frightened uh to to intervene and regulate although I, I would say investigating this that New Zealand uh is not quite the wild west but not a long way uh, shy of that in terms of the lack of regulation even to countries uh like the UK which has had a, a tax on sugar sweetened beverages since 2018 now and that was a Tory government who did it over there usually they're a bit more hands-off um but uh so we we are pretty unregulated
0: in this space.
1: And, of course, that
0: allows uh, organisations like the Food and Grocery Council to, and this, once again, ties into another series that you've been doing on lobbying, to push and push and keep maintaining the status quo. I mean, and, and to, on the face of it, the Food and Grocery Council, it sounds like a pretty serious organisation that you go to for the odd quote, you know, like the Taxpayers Union. Are we not cynical enough about these groups to allow them to continue nudging their point of view across
1: I'm glad you raised the the lobbying series because it's been a big focus of, of my work this year and I I did a separate uh, story on food industry lobbying as part of this series and I think you're right I think New Zealanders are incredibly naive actually about the way lobbying works in New Zealand and the relationships um, that some of these people forge and are able to forge with politicians. I mean one of these stories um, looked at just how deep the influence was um, right through those domains that you talked about sport, nutrition, you know that they're, they're in there sponsoring uh, food programs in schools, they're in embedded really in the political and social life of New Zealand, which makes it a lot easier for them to push back when regulation comes that they don't want to see happen.
0: Like a sugar tax.
1: Like a sugar tax, (laughs) yes, exactly. (laughs)
0: Um, This series also has thrown up some really interesting stuff, I feel, like your OIA that led to the revelation that cutting the GST on fruit and vegetables is really not going to go anywhere.
1: Yeah, well, that that's interesting. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, economists have, have issues with this uh, policy. What was interesting to me was that that advice we got was in April, you know, well before this election campaign, to say, hey, look, um, the way that GST is calculated means that you're just not going to get those uh, pass-on effects. And we've seen this in the UK where even they have a grocery commissioner, uh, about 20% of the of the cut was passed on to consumers over there. And so the, the idea that you're going to, to, to wipe 15% off fruit and vegetables by cutting the GST, unfortunately, it, it is not going to be the case. And health officials warned ministers of that way back in April.
0: How urgent is it now that the government puts on its big boy pants and just intervenes, intervenes in the flesh packaging or the labelling of these foods or the cutting down of these foods? Well I think you could
1: mount a credible argument that this is if not the biggest, one of the biggest issues in the health system. I mean, you've got a, a, a tsunami of type 2 diabetes, unfortunately, coming down the barrel in New Zealand, and we've already got over 250,000 cases, and that's predicted to go close to 490,000 by 2040. It's a $2 billion imposition on the um, health system at the moment, heading towards $3.5 billion. So, you know, it, it is a real imposition on on the health system. and it's one of these things that if we could do something about it earlier before we get some of these issues coming coming down the track, then you know that that would have huge benefits for the health system. So I think it, it is urgent and I think, you know, no one's going to be proud of those podium positions we have of um, silver and bronze for obesity in in New Zealand.
0: And I mean, even the World Health Organization says that we haven't even lived up on our to our basic promises on this, don't they? They what they gave us a two out of four for trying to make progress in this area.
1: Yeah, we've basically done pretty much nothing um, in, in this space at all. Um, we have toyed with these ideas, the idea of. Um, fruit and vegetables being exempt from GST or sugar taxes have been kicked around in New Zealand for a long time and it's quite similar to the alcohol um, scenario really where they say uh, governments have been for 10 or 20 years looking at um, pulling um, sport and um, sponsorship and alcohol apart but The governments um, just never go there and have been too frightened to actually do anything. And that's the space we're in. I hope that, um, you know, that some of the impact of this series might lead these people to think again.
0: Let's hope. Okay, well, let's listen to you reading your own story, fully embedded, the food lobby in Aotearoa.
1: As they put the finishing touches on the agenda for the Nutrition Society's conference, organisers faced a familiar dilemma take the money from a big food company, or assert their independence and risk the event falling over. In an email exchange linked to RNZ, the organising committee chair for the 2020 conference, a professor of human nutrition at Massey University, outlined the deal before them. The arrangement is that for 25000 Australian dollars, Dairy Australia sponsors a plenary speaker, she said. They can suggest a speaker, but the conference committee has the final say on approval. Dairy Australia wanted Professor Frank Mittliner, an air quality specialist at the Department of Animal Science in the United States, to speak on a topic. It was the 2050 Challenge. Can we eat our way out of climate change? Now Mittliner is a strong defender of meat and agriculture in the media, writing about the False assumptions, he calls them, about the linkage between meat and climate change and saying that foregoing meat and meat products is not the environmental panacea that many would have us believe. According to a 2022 article in the New York Times, his academic group, the Clare Centre at the University of California, receives almost all its funding from industry donations and coordinates with major livestock lobby groups on messaging campaigns. The email chain leaked to RNZ shows a member of the Conference Organising Committee from the School of Population Health at Auckland University opposed Mitlina speaking at the Nutrition Society's conference. I am against allowing industry to select a speaker on principle, she wrote. If the committee wants to invite him, I strongly support having a whole session on sustainability where we can select the rest of the speakers and include a panel discussion where the experts can go back and forth, rather than one person just getting a platform to present a certain point of view and going unchallenged. Her concerns were shared by another committee member, an independent nutritionist. She confided that she'd faced the same dilemma the previous year when Jeremy Hill, Chief Science and Technology Officer at Fonterra and a 30-year veteran of the company, spoke at the 2019 Nutrition Society's Conference. "'I have concerns about allowing an industry personality "'to be the keynote speaker,' she said. "'As with Jeremy Hill's talk at this year's conference, "'I can't imagine that a dairy industry spokesperson "'will present the whole picture, "'particularly around the environmental, soil and water quality issues "'related to dairying, which are extremely relevant to sustainability.'" But then she cut to the chase money talks. We probably can't turn down $25,000, can we? She asked. It's going to be a huge conference and making up that kind of cash would be a stretch. We could use that money to bring speakers in that balance up the content as a whole. Now in the end, COVID-19 intervened and the conference was cancelled. But multiple sources told RNZ this situation was common for organisers of such events. The food industry offered up the cash and its chosen speakers loomed large in the discourse. Investigating the influence of the food lobby, RNZ followed a trail of sponsorships, payments, programmes and deals running across sport, politics, nutrition and education. Now, on their own, none of the arrangements would warrant screaming headlines, but taken together, they show the food industry has considerable influence on the debate about obesity, nutrition and sustainability. Professor Boyd Swinburne, the co-chair of Health Coalition Aotearoa, says the food lobby is hugely powerful. They're fully embedded in the political and economic life in New Zealand, he says. As soon as there's some policy on the table that the thinking about sugary drinks tax or restrictions on junk food marketing or so on, they will pounce. Documents obtained by RNZ under the Official Information Act give glimpses of the relationship that the food industry has with politicians. When he worked for the New Zealand arm of the trans-Tasman lobbying firm an actor, Andrew Curtin lined up a series of dinners between politicians and executives of the supermarket giant Countdown. Countdown's New Zealand Managing Director, Spencer Sun, would like to invite the Minister to dinner with the Countdown Executive in Auckland, Curtin wrote in an email to the Finance Minister, Grant Robertson, in January of 2022. The dinners were billed as a chance for VIP guests to discuss portfolio issues and hear about Countdown's plans. The email said... They're designed to be very informal affairs and an opportunity for the Minister and Executive to get to know each other in a relaxed environment. Robertson accepted the opportunity and he dined with Countdown Executives between 5.30 and 8 in March of 2022. Unlike most developed countries, New Zealand has no call-off periods or other rules that stop the revolving door between lobbying and politics, so people are free to move between the two as quickly as they like. Curtin resigned from the lobbying firm just one day before he was announced as chief of staff for Prime Minister Chris Hipkins on the first of february twenty twenty three. Alan Reed, who was Deputy Chief Press Secretary for Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, is now head of public relations and community for the Woolworths Group, which owns Countdown. RNZ also obtained documents showing that Barbara Edmonds, who was Associate Health Minister with the Responsibility for Obesity between February and July of this year, accepted a business attachment programme with supermarket giant Foodstuffs. She was set to do this business attachment, which was facilitated by the New Zealand Business and Parliament Trust, in April, but she cancelled after she was given the Cyclone recovery portfolio, which required extensive travel. Now, the Minister's office did not address RNZ's questions, including if she sought advice from the Cabinet Office about whether the business attachment with foodstuffs would have been a conflict of interests. A spokesperson for Edmonds simply said, Ministers receive a range of invitations to meet. In this instance, the Minister declined the invitation. RNZ also found the food industry has an influential role providing nutrition programmes and resources to teachers and children in the education system. Foodstuffs sponsors the Food for Thought programme, which it says has reached more than 200,000 New Zealand children in 7,300 classes. According to the Food Industry Task Force report of 2018, this programme involves nutrition education and an educational visit to Pack and Save, New World or Foursquare and preparation of lunch using ingredients from the supermarket. The Food Industry Report says the programme was developed by foodstuffs alongside medical professionals, teachers and nutritionists and aims to reduce rising rates of obesity in New Zealand. Nestle, one of the world's largest manufacturers of ultra processed food, runs the Nestle Healthy Active Kids Program. The program supports the development of free teacher resources designed for teachers, according to the Food Industry Task Force, aiming to inspire healthy and active kids. The program is a collaboration with the Nutrition Foundation, a charity that promotes healthy eating but gets much of its money from big food companies. Corporate members include Nestle, Fonterra, Countdown, Coca-Cola, McDonald's and the Antares Restaurant Group, which is the master franchisee of Burger King in New Zealand. Charity documents show that in 2021, corporate subscriptions accounted for $112,000 of the Nutrition Foundation's $195,000 in revenue. Corporates provided $94,000 in 2022 and $90,000 in 2023. Professor of Nutrition Elaine Rush, who until recently was a scientific director at the Nutrition Foundation, said the foundation was not compromised by the money from the big food companies. I certainly speak out very strongly if I think there might be any influence, she said. When asked why the big players in the food industry fund the foundation, she said they want to be seen as having social responsibility. Now Rush acknowledges the tension between the goals of the food industry and the aims of the Nutrition Foundation. They want to make a profit so they will sell what people will buy, she says. That's where we need stronger regulation like, for instance, a sugary drinks tax or incentives so that healthier food is more easily available and becomes a realistic choice for people. But ultimately, Rush says obesity is everyone's problem and the solutions need to come from the government, NGOs and from the food industry. We need to work together to make these things better so if we exclude them completely, We can't do that work together, she says. But Fiona Singh, a research fellow at Auckland University and an international food and nutrition policy specialist, doesn't see it that way. She says big food companies are using corporate social responsibility programmes to burnish their reputations and head off regulation that could hurt their profits. She told me that anything that is designed to try and regulate the food industry and the way it works, they will have an interest in it, and not just be consulted, but be part of the process. Singh says the food industry has achieved that in New Zealand, saying we haven't seen any meaningful food law put in place that would regulate anything in the unhealthy food space. Singh said the food industry should not be involved in education programmes provided to children about nutrition and obesity. The resources and the expertise exist, she says. This doesn't need to be provided by any company that has a commercial vested interest. The Food and Grocery Council. They've been one of the most influential and controversial lobby groups for the food industry. The Food and Grocery Council says its members, who are food manufacturers and suppliers, including the large multinationals, directly or indirectly employ nearly 500,000 people, that's one in five of the New Zealand workforce. The Food and Grocery Council was led for more than 13 years by the former National MP Catherine Rich and became associated with aggressive lobbying tactics. The Food and Grocery Council and Catherine Rich were both named as defendants in defamation action, stemming from Nikki Hager's 2014 book Dirty Politics, which outlined a campaign to place damaging stories attacking public health messaging about the dangers of sugary food, Alcohol and tobacco. The defamatory blogs were posted on the website Whale Oil between 2009 and 2016. Those targeted were Doug Selman of Alcohol Action, Population Nutrition and Global Health Professor Boyd Swinburne, and the former director of Te Reo Marama, the maori Smoke Free Coalition, Shane Bradbrook. Catherine Rich and the Food and Grocery Council settled before the case reached court. That left public relations consultant Carrick Graham to apologise to the three public health advocates and make a confidential payment. In March 2021, at the High Court in Auckland, Graham admitted that the statements made against the men were untrue, unfair, offensive, insulting and defamatory and were done to advance the interests of industry. The Food and Grocery Council released a statement following the case saying that it did not pay anyone to write any stories on its behalf on whale oil or any other publication and it was not involved in any such stories in any other way. Raywin Blakely, who took over from Catherine Rich a year ago, distanced the Food and Grocery Council from the saga. I wasn't there, she says. What I can say is it didn't go to court because the case was settled for the Food and Grocery Council before it went to court. There was never any fault admitted. Blakely also said she would forge a new path for the Food and Grocery Council, telling me, I'm in the role as a new person and we've got a new board and it's not my intention to shoot down evidence-based academic studies. She went on to pledge not to use aggressive tactics lobbying for the food industry. You absolutely will not see them from the Food and Grocery Council or from me, she said. I'm not saying they did happen, but you will absolutely not see them. I have a very strong set of values.
0: That was Fully Embedded, the food lobby in Aotearoa, written and read here by in-depth investigative reporter Gaian Espiner and published at rnz.co.nz. The details long read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with another long read. Ka kite ono.